4: Oh hi. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Let's Talk About Myths, baby. I hate I hate my singing voice. And I'm barely singing. Did you think 500 episodes was enough? <laughs> there will never be enough. I'm going to do this forever. I am your host, live here to bring you all the most joyful and fascinating aspects of the ancient world because gods, there's just So much to learn and so much to love and so much to fill your heart with all of the warm and fuzzies. (laughs) Today, I am here with a friend of the podcast, even though this is her first episode, Dr. Melissa Funky. Melissa is one of the hosts of the People in the Past podcast and one of the founders of People in the Past, which is just generally an amazing platform full of fascinating stuff about the ancient world and specifically the real people who lived there. It's run by a bunch of amazing women who are just generally like fucking lovely. They held a colloquium in Vancouver last spring and it was so much fun and so informative and made me feel very smart and cool. And yes, uh, a few of us did sing karaoke late one night, Melissa included. (laughs) I was such a joy. But today, Melissa is here to talk all about the very real ancient woman, most famous for something that may or may not have been real. The time she flashed a courtroom of people to get herself off a charge of impiety. She was so hot, so naked, that they acquitted her. (laughs) Or at least that is what her most famous anecdote says. The truth is maybe a little murkier, but no less wonderful. So today we're talking about Phryne, sometimes called Phryne, same woman. We're talking about Phryne Heteri in ancient Athens, sex work in the ancient world generally, who were the women of ancient Athens, you know, pulling strings and taking gifts and just living their best lives or as best as is humanly possible for a woman in ancient Athens? It seems like Franny was one of them, just living that best life. She is so cool. There was a statue of her at Delphi. A statue of a sex worker at Delphi, you guys. That is how famously hot she was. <laughs> Also, this episode ended up being just truly bizarrely perfect for where we're at in the podcast right now. So Freeney was famously from Thespii, which I forgot when I did last week's episode, aka the polis I mentioned on Tuesday, where Heracles was said to have slept with Thespius's 50 daughters. You remember that totally normal anecdote, right? (laughs) And this episode revolves so much around women in ancient Athens, but including the very specific role of foreign women in Athens around the time of Freeney foreign meaning, just not born of Athenians. And, and brilliantly, next week's conversation is about exactly what things were like for those foreign women. I didn't plan this. It just worked so beautifully. So we get this introduction to foreign women in Athens through Freene, and then next week we learn about all of those women, or rather what they could and could not do. But today, we are talking about this Freeney, this very specific foreign woman who was a badass and super cool courtesan, a hetera, before next week, all of those details with my guest, Rebecca Futo-Kennedy. We have an amazing lineup coming in. Plus, weirdly, Melissa was Ruby Blondell's PhD student, which I didn't know until we were recording. So just truly, I mean, serendipity, you guys. Like, this whole month of episodes, Perfect. All right, no more of me rambling. Let's get to Freeny, my new favorite ancient woman. Conversations, flashing her way to freedom. Freeny and Heteri with Melissa Funky. Is it, it's Friny, is that right? Or friny? okay, yes. so this is
5: actually a, a bone of contention.
4: Great, let's start there.
5: <laughs> okay, sure. I have always called her Friny um, because of the way that people in North America tend to anglicize certain sounds in or from Greek, but Brits call her Friny, and I suspect mm. Australians too. Uh, and so I have had British people like be very scandalized. They're like, "Surely you mean Friny." And I mean, you know, I, I call her Frinny. Um, yeah, I've heard other people call her Frinny. We're not using ancient Greek here, too, right? So, like, Frinny yeah. is no more accurate than Frinny for Frune. So, right, you know, <laughs> um, I I call her Frinny, but um, I, I suspect there will be some Brits going, "Oh my God, what is she doing to this poor name?" Uh, you but know what? That's... I mean,
4: I I prefer it that way. I I swear. I mean so many times I'll hear British people pronounce names and I, it's like, it's like they're going with a Shakespearean version and it <laughs> it so often sounds too much like that to me that I'm like, I kind of prefer almost the North American versions of saying a lot of the names. Um, so mm-hmm. I certainly do that too. I've, had conversations where I'm like, we're just pronouncing it two different ways throughout, and it is what it
5: is. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I have moments all the time where I'm like, how do I want to say this name? Do I want, like, should a kappa be a a C, like a soft C in English? But mm -hmm. no, I do it. I do it enough. And I, I tend to pick when I'm teaching what my students are most likely to hear. So,
4: yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I I, I certainly mix up, especially when it comes to the K. Like, yeah, it's very tough to decide. (laughs) Yeah. And, but, you know, it's
5: not a living language in the same way. So if if I were speaking someone's name, for example, obviously I'm not going to be like, nah, it's coming out the way I'm saying it. (laughs) Uh, You know, obviously I would never do that to a person who is alive. (laughs) I feel like Franny can handle it if my pronunciation of her name is like the least distorted aspect of her that has made it to
4: 2023 so (laughs) well that leads to the perfect way of like the way I kind of wanted to start this which is just that so her story I feel like unlike most things from ancient Greece has become like a meme that goes around fairly often Mm -hmm. of just like that one moment I won't spoil it all but that one moment that she seems to be so famous for Um, And that is all that I know about her. So I really want to hear everything. Not least because she's a real ancient woman. So just, yeah, please tell me everything. (laughs) So... Um, because it's summer break, I've been
5: kind of, you know, spending time on social media. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just look up on TikTok. Like, what do you get for Frinny on TikTok? And oh you're God. right. She is a meme. The first thing you get is, oh, she's this woman who flashed her way to freedom, I think is one of the headlines that I've seen, <laughs> um, but who like was naked in front of people, right? Mm-hmm. And in a way, like that is true. Like she, uh, uh, describing her as a meme is not incorrect. Like she's an ancient meme, basically, this mm-hmm. woman. And so all the stories of her are, are just various memes that have become compiled in all of these different ways. But there is a real woman at the heart of all this Mm-hmm. And we can't quite discover her. And that's something that I, that you have to accept um, with mm-hmm. a woman like Frinny, a figure like Frinny, because of the way her stories and details about her have been recorded, is that we're never going to like dig down to who is the real Frinny. We might as well hope to find the real Helen of Troy, right? There's no, there's no chance. Um, but if we kind of look at the collected stories, that's where we start to get an image of what possibilities there were for a woman like her. Um, mm. So, yeah, so Frinny, the the story that we are alluding to here, by the way, is the story <laughs> of her trial, right? So she went on trial in fourth century Athens for impiety. And just when it seemed like she was about to be convicted um, and, and it was possible in this kind of a case that it could have been a capital trial, right? She could have been, hmm. you know, at risk of being put to death um, that it, and there are different stories in one of the stories, one of the versions she reveals herself um, in the other one, the fellow who is representing her hyperides the basically her lawyer in, in the mm-hmm. courtroom, he whips off her, her dress,
4: hmm. and she's of
5: course, so outrageously beautiful, that all the men, and of course, the jury is composed of Athenian citizen men, of course, we're all sitting there, go, oh, my God, she's so beautiful. And in, in some of the sources, they say it's almost like she, they're struck with religious awe, like they're looking at Aphrodite almost, right? And that uh, this, this sense of um, this, this beauty, right, uh, mm-hmm. causes them to acquit her. So this is, this is probably the most famous story about her of the, the many that are told. Um, but the two most famous stories about her involve nudity,
3: right? Mm-hmm. So that's the
5: thing about Frinny. She is famously, you know, one of the most beautiful women, uh, or at least most attractive women, and she is periodically <laughs> naked in very prominent settings in public. Um, so the other story about Frinny that is often told, and this, there's only one ancient source that actually really makes this connection directly, um, but is that she is the model for uh, the Aphrodite of Knidos,
4: Right. So,
5: yeah. So um, for those who aren't familiar with this statue, um, you've seen images of it for sure. Even if you don't know what it's called, it's the first, it's known as the first monumental female nude. So the first Mm -hmm. nude female statue that is sort of life-size or bigger. Right, so there's other nude images on vase paintings, on um, carved friezes and things, but not these statues that would be put into. Uh, a temple, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so there's this very famous statue. um, People will be familiar probably with the image of uh, Botticelli's birth of Venus, right? That is, Mm -hmm. that pose is based on the the Aphrodite of Knidos. So the story, the one source that we have from Athenaeus, this late Roman author from Egypt, right? Um, He says that that Phryne, she was again, well known in, in fourth century Athens, She's a sex worker. We haven't even touched on that yet. (laughs) Uh, But she's a very famous, exclusive sex worker. And she goes to a festival down by the sea. And it seems to be um, a festival down in Eleusis, which is sort of in northern Mm. Attica. And she's down by the sea. And she goes and bathes in the sea. And as she emerges nude before this crowd, everyone, again, is kind of struck with awe. And there happen to be a couple of the most famous artists of classical Greece <laughs> there. Praxiteles, the sculptor, who sculpts the Aphrodite of Knidos, and Apelles, who is the painter who paints the Aphrodite, it's called uh, Aphrodite Anadyomene, so rising from the sea, basically. Mm. Um, and again, that's a very famous pose we'd be I'm um, kind of familiar with where it's a nude woman rising out of the sea um, and she's, uh, of course, I'm doing the actions for this and we're on a <laughs> podcast, uh, but but she's sort of wringing out her hair on either side of her head. So it's a very famous mm-hmm. pose. Um, I'm going to end up talking about that pose probably later anyways. Um, but anyways, of course, you know, these two most famous visual artists who have probably the most impact on visual art on sculpture on painting in ancient Greece just happened to be there to see this famously beautiful woman emerging right so uh yes so she's her fame is largely centered on sort of appearing naked in public at just the right time
4: I mean I love that for her (laughs) like (laughs) what a way to leave a memory but also especially when it comes to ancient Athens because like we don't know a lot of real women who did things that could get them that famous and that's fun
5: yeah like who are the women whose names we know Uh, a student once once asked me this I was teaching a class on fourth century Athens and he was like Mm -hmm. can you name can you name a woman what are the named women and so I said Frinny and then I said Lice and then I just was naming all sex workers right which is fine it's good it's okay to know both sex workers but I couldn't name just regular sort of everyday citizen women or enslaved women, certainly. And, and if I was an epigrapher, if I studied inscriptions, yeah, I probably know mm-hmm. a few from gravestones and things like that. But in terms of the ones that I know offhand, I know a little bit about their lives. I know mm-hmm. a little bit about their identities. That's it, right, is, is mostly sex workers.
4: Yeah, well I'm thinking Aspasia mm-hmm. is the other one that I couldn't think of Yeah, I don't know, Like is she fourth or fifth? But like Yeah, yeah. I mean there's not a lot. <laughs> and yeah, she's she also, fifth century,
5: yeah. Right. But but she's also she gets called worker, right? a sex worker. She gets right. called yeah, a sex okay. worker. Okay. Yeah. She is not likely to have been a sex worker, but she's a woman yeah. in public, so why not call her a sex worker well, yeah, anyway? Right? That's yeah. how
4: they that, of course that's what they were.
5: <laughs> yeah I mean, there are people there are some people who have suggested even that women like frenny. Um, and so the term that I would apply to her is Hitira, which mm-hmm. um, it just literally means female companion.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, but we found it, that out it's, like that it just means companion blew my yeah. mind because yeah, the way that it is used interchangeably with sex worker all of the time, Yeah. And then I saw it used in relation to Patroclus. And I was like, I'm sorry. It just means companion. And like, when we're translating it about men, we're saying comrade. And when we're translating about women, we're saying often straight whore and you're like okay then what is the same (laughs) really that's what we're doing so yeah that's fascinating
5: yeah well in the way that I think that we would also use euphemisms today if I was like oh I saw so and so and he had a companion wink wink (laughs) you know it's that kind of thing but then you get this slippage where you can apply it to women who are in public with men right Mm -hmm. who are not their husbands um, and so then it's like, are they sex workers? Are they just women who are not doing what you expect or want them to do?
2: Mm-hmm. So
5: and, and even in fourth century Athens, especially in the legal trials, right, because quite a few of the uh, sex workers end up on trial. Right. Think about uh, Neaira Neira is a good example of this. And there's a, a very clever way that the speakers use the term hetaira. Because mm-hmm. they're kind of suggesting, oh, companion, wink, wink, the kind of woman that you would give gifts to, wink, wink. And then, you know, in, in Against Nayyar, for example, the speaker towards the end, he's like, actually, she's a porne. She's a, just a regular old prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see, even then, they're really aware that there is slippage in this term. So yes, mm-hmm. you're right. Like in the modern world, we can't just assume if someone calls someone a sex worker, that they are mm-hmm. a sex worker right mm-hmm. I, I mean the same is true in the modern world too
4: mm-hmm. well and it's just so mm-hmm. interesting to have that differentiation because I think like i I'm just thinking of translations because that's what I come across most yeah but so often you get hetera a hetera like when it's about a woman translated in these like really derogatory ways when it I mean it does just mean companion but also like you said there's the differentiation between a hetera and a pornite which is like like ones like I used to I I tend to call them like fancy sex workers on my show like when I'm referring to that exact type like you know more like an escort versus you know a more you know the porno being like more traditional kind I guess street style sex workers but so often in translations it is just like straight whore or something and it just makes me think of I mean just the way things have been translated for us and how that's impacted everything but Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that I mean, that's a really big problem,
5: right? Like with, with the hetairai in particular, it's a huge problem. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's a real like slippage between the terms. And definitely mm. like we can't as scholars go, oh, okay, well you, like we don't have the receipts to go, oh, well you charge yeah. by the hour. So you're a corne. Oh, <laughs> did you accept a really expensive necklace? Obviously you're a hetairai. Like there's going to be some major slippage there. And even yeah. when it comes to like sex work, how do we determine... Like what actually is a sex worker? Because the hitairoi, it seems, were sometimes brought into people's houses for like mm-hmm. long term relationships. Does is that sex work? Well, in my books, it kind of is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or like there are enslaved people in houses who are basically doing sexual labor but they're not really like Mm -hmm. maybe they're not sex workers because that's not how they make a living like there's so much slippage there with sexual labor Mm -hmm. as a whole and then the terms we use because they're so often meant to be derogatory it's really hard to you know to know and then you make a bunch of assumptions too about again women in public (laughs) women in the wrong place and tickety-boo we have some misogyny there right
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah. (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, this comes up. I, I've spoken to Elodie Harper, who wrote The Wolf Den a few times. Mm, mm-hmm. And I remember like that she was so specific in how she was talking about it, because in at least in the first book, like the character is in the actual like the wolf den, the brothel in Pompeii. And so she made a point of using the word prostitute. She was like she was being prostituted by somebody else. Like there's a difference there mm-hmm. between the kind of empowerment that often can come with the term sex worker and it, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially in those cases, like the differences is important to, to kind of clarify because it, I mean, it just all about agency and everything. Yeah.
5: yeah. Yeah. And I like, I genuinely suspect that a woman like Friddy who ended up becoming so famous and so prominent, her beginnings were probably not very pleasant. Again, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to guarantee anything about this, but you know, the odds are not impossible that she was probably enslaved as a child mm-hmm. Um, and we know again from speeches like against Naira that women were brought into the sex trade enslaved very often and often very young. Like the speaker mm-hmm. who's talking about Naira says she was basically too young. She wasn't mature enough when she started Ooh. in sex if work, right? Means- it's dire.
4: Yeah. If yeah, you're thinian. too young, like then. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's really yeah. too young.
5: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, certainly yeah. by like 2023 standards. Right.
4: Yeah,
5: God. Um. So, you know, it's, it's very easy to be like, oh, she was this beautiful woman who like, showed up on the seaside and was, you know, um, inspired these artists. But when you really think about the power dynamics that were at play, probably for most of her life, even once she became, and I think it's very likely that she did become very wealthy at some mm-hmm. point, there's still the way that Athenian society is set up in particular, you know, anyone can grab her and pop her into court. And she's got to stand there before a bunch of Athenian citizen men and hope mm. that they're not going to put her to death or do something terrible to her. So I think it's very easy when we look at these stories of the Hittai, right, to get sort of swept up into the, you know, the glamour of it. But there's like a really non-glamorous core there that we have to mm. like keep in mind all the time.
4: yeah. So if she was on trial for impiety, like, do we know what that looked like? Do we know what she did or what they said
3: she did? Oh, that's
5: a great question. Okay. So she is, one of our sources mentions that she's accused of introducing new gods, which is um, also the same for Socrates. It's basically the same charges that Socrates got charged with. That's
4: fascinating.
5: And I, you know, thinking about Frinny... I was like, okay, Freni's actually kind of, in a sense, she's like a parallel to Socrates. Hmm. And so it's not uncommon to, to put philosophers and hetairai together. So like the later Roman authors have a blast. They, put, they make jokes about it all the time, about how silly it is to kind of pair these two. And they always have like the hetairai are sort of more clever than the, the philosophers half the time. They're getting the best of these famous men. But they're all people who are like trying, they're trying to spend time with wealthy, typically younger Athenian men from elite families. And they're like making some money off of this too. Mm-hmm. Socrates less so, but that they are getting something from this relationship. Mm-hmm. And, but again, ultimately that power still rests with those elite young men in a way even though it doesn't seem that way. Um, And so they're vulnerable if public opinion turns, if those men turn on them, they're in big trouble, which is it's not quite that the young men that were following Socrates turned on him, but enough public sentiment did, right? And there he was up on trial, And so Frinney is the same. Um, The the suggestion is that the fellow who brought her to court, a fellow named Euthyus, had been her lover uh, previously and brought her to court. And then Mm -hmm. the fellow, of course, who defends her hyperides is like a famous... Um, patron of sex workers he's apparently got like two or three on the go in different households around Attica when he steps up to defend Frinny um, again like these all come from different sources so I think uh, yeah. you know much of it we have to to really think about a little bit more critically, uh, but these are the stories that are told uh, about her. so yeah, she goes she goes up for trial for impiety, basically she's been having um, gatherings in the Lyceum, and of course the Lyceum is where Aristotle's school is, right mm-hmm. like that further connection to our philosophers. Um, she's introduced a new god. Um, the name of the god in one of the sources is Isodites, who is like a sort of connected to Dionysus, right? So mm-hmm. she's, she's doing things that are making people uncomfortable, I think is the moral of that story. Yeah. But the punishment in these court cases is not fixed. So what happens in first century Athens when these charges are brought, you have a sort of the main trial to see if you're guilty or not. And then you have a second um, sort of mini trial over what the punishment will be. So you right. can propose. And it's the same thing that happens to Socrates, actually. If anyone's ever read Socrates' Apology it's the exact same thing where he gets to propose a, a sort of an easier punishment for himself. Um, mm. Anyways, and so, but the, the concern is that she could be put to death over this. And again, that, that moment of revelation is what saves her and saves her life. Yeah,
4: <laughs> just the idea that she was, too hot for them to kill like that's pretty great that's (laughs) it right there um but yeah so I mean I realized I should have started this with the note but I will in my introduction anyway um Mm -hmm. but you've written a book on her so that I mean one that's so cool and obviously that's why we're talking but like how much do we know we know a book's worth about this woman Well, okay. So I, I, certainly,
5: (laughs) well, I have done, but, but also there's that like speculation using evidence of other similar figures where you're like, okay, there is this court case about Naira that is one of our most fulsome sources about the life of any woman in the fourth century even though it's written from the perspective of someone who is obviously trying to slander her and, you know, depict her as this horrible person. But it actually gives us a lot of insight into like what the life of a sex worker might have been like. So I'm not saying that Frinny and Naira are the same, but they lived at the same time, right? The trial of Naira happened in the 340s when Frinny was pretty active in Athens. Um, So we can kind of go, okay, they were were kind of peers in a way, right? They Mm -hmm. have... Something in common, and so whether Frenny's story is identical or just shares elements, n- people like Naira and those stories give us this space to kind of speculate in a generative way, um, mm-hmm. which is what we're always doing with Frenny because all of her stories are fragments, right? That fragments mm-hmm. make you fill in the blanks. So anytime we encounter her, so what are the stories about Frenny? Like what? What do we know? Mm-hmm. Okay, we know her. Frenny's a nickname. It means mm. toad because her complexion <laughs> okay. was so pale. <laughs> and I always I'm always trying to figure out like what is toad like about a woman's appearance um yeah so, uh, especially when one not, is
4: famously beautiful <laughs> like she yeah. famous for being hot but her name means toad like okay there's a lot happening I know there. I mean it's kind of like when you call a tall guy
5: shorty you know
4: right <laughs> I kinda, it's kind of like that
5: maybe yeah. um but I I'm not gonna lie when I was researching this book I did look at a lot of pictures of toads just to yeah. kind of explore how that metaphor might be working <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we know that her original name was Menesarete, which means like sort of recalling virtue. Um, mm. And she was, or excellence, I suppose. Uh, she was from Thespiae or connected to Thespii. Thespii is in um, Boeotia, which is north of Attica. Um, mm. So she's from Thespii, or she has a connection. So some people have suggested her family lived in Athens as resident foreigners. And you would never be an Athenian if you're a resident Mm -hmm. foreigner. You could never, no matter how long or how many generations in the fourth century, it was impossible, basically, to become an Athenian. So, but I think she probably came to Athens, possibly as a refugee. Thespiae was Mm -hmm. destroyed by the Thebans, uh, I think in 371-ish. So, you know, there's lots of ways that she could have ended up in Athens, but she definitely associated with this town Thespiae. Okay, so, you know, what's the deal with SBI? Well, thespiae is famous for its massive sanctuary to the god Eros. And what's hmm. the god, e- you know, Eros the god of? <laughs> sexy love is how I always <laughs> translate it <laughs> yeah. for my students. Like, like desire, right? Sexual desire. So yeah. you've got the hottest <laughs> sex worker of the fourth century, and she's from the same hometown as like sexy love.
4: Hmm, mm-hmm. This is
5: all really perfect and ideal. Uh, but mm-hmm. I do think she she really was connected. The, the You know, if we want to say, okay, there's a real Frenny somewhere in these stories. I do think she's really connected to the FBI. Um There were statues of her there historically that we know about. There's a coin hmm. um, that references this statue. So at some point, the statue was there. It was, of course, like a lot of famous statues taken out and moved around by the Romans. Um, yeah. But it was there. But yeah.
4: A statue of a real woman, like yeah. a sex worker, ended up actually on display that's incredible
5: on display in a sanctuary yeah. and it's a sanctuary to eros sense. so yeah. and apparently it was part of a trio so eros aphrodite and and aphrodite of course who she's associated with through praxiteles but in this yeah. like very minor way um but yes so aphrodite praxiteles and eros all together in this trio um, which that's is incredible. great there was also a statue of her a gilded statue at delphi Um, God, that was up with a a Spartan king. And I want to say a a famous Theban general. Uh, But, you know, and it was of her and it wasn't like her posing as someone. It was her as herself. Um, And so, you know, you hear there are different anecdotes where people walk in and they're, you know, they look at it and they're shocked. Who would put a statue of a sex worker in this, you know, in Delphi, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, she's prominent enough, no matter what, she's prominent enough for it to be accepted that you could find a statue of her in these places. Yeah. Which, you know, it just says a lot about her profile. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. Yeah.
4: (laughs) That just makes me so happy. (laughs)
5: And so like a lot of the writers who think about Frinny, they're really obsessed with these images of her and this connection to Praxiteles. So there's lots of poems, um, epigrams, so the the kind of poem that you would inscribe on on a statue base. And often Mm -hmm. epigrams kind of blur the line between literature and object. So they'll Mm -hmm. make the objects talk if uh, often... You know, it'll say, you know, um, like if it's a statue of a cow, oh, I'm I'm the cow sculpted by Myron. You can practically hear me mooing kind of thing. Right. (laughs) And so (laughs) for the statues of Frinni or statues connected to Frinni. So there are epigrams about a statue of Eros that was given to Frinni by Praxiteles. And they, they love to blur the lines in that relationship between like, who's the creator, who's inspiring this. Is it Eros? Is it Frinny? Uh, is Frinny the creator of the statue because she inspired Praxiteles to create this mm-hmm. image of Eros. Right. And it's this whole, um, yeah, just blurring of lines. Um, there's a very famous letter um, or fictional letter, I should say, written in the second century CE by a writer named Alcifron. And he's, again, he's one of these writers writing in Greek um, under the Roman Empire. And he writes it, it's an invitation from Frinni to Praxiteles, to the sculptor, to come and make love to her beside the statue at Thespii that he has sculpted of her with the statues of Eros and Aphrodite. there, like all watching on, right? Right. (laughs) And she's like, you know, like you gave this to me. It's a gift of your love, but from your love for me. And we're not doing anything wrong. We're not defiling anything by making love in a sanctuary. And I suspect that listeners of your podcast know that that's not usually a good thing to do, right? No, (laughs) you're not doing that.
4: Or don't do
5: that in like (laughs) Athena's sanctuary because you're going to end up in big trouble. But she's like, we're not defiling anything because this is like a divine love that we have, and you've created these divine images. So there's a lot of um, sort of melding of Frinny with Eros, Frinny with Aphrodite, blurring the lines between her and these, this divine sort of, it's almost like a divine trio, Frinny, Aphrodite and Eros together. Yeah. Yeah. There's a level
4: of irony in there that she was on trial for impiety and then this happened after the fact. Like, if if anything sounds like impiety, it's like putting a human woman alongside Eros and Aphrodite as like, you know, I mean, even just connect getting her that close to them in terms of importance and beauty and everything. Like.
5: Exactly. Or yeah, like putting a picture or a picture, an image of her at Delphi. Right. Um, but I ah. mean, I, if you think about, and so there's, this is actually in, it's a dialogue of Plutarch's where, you know, a, a cynic philosopher comes along. He's like, what the heck is this doing here? This is ridiculous. Like any good cynic, right, is, uh, I don't like anything. Um, but the person with him is like, well, look at everything else here at Delphi. It's all been here because of war, because of terrible things that people have done. Some of it's been stolen. And that's the impiety you're worried about. That's what you find yeah. is excessive. And I, I really love that moment. Because it's such a great point, right? That, mm-hmm. that you know, like what is actually so terrible about having this noted woman when you would have, you could practically put up a temple to yourself, not quite a temple, but, you know, you could, you could put up a monument to yourself right inside the most sacred um, sanctuaries. So why can't mm-hmm. Frenny get some action in there? Why, you know, yeah. I mean, I, and in the letter, I mean, literal action too,
4: but <laughs> I mean, of course, if with a like, reputation like hers, it's got to happen. Yeah.
5: So, I mean, so I think based on all of these connections to Praxiteles and the statues, I do mm-hmm. think that at some point she and Praxiteles were connected. Mm-hmm. Did they have to have been lovers? I don't think so. That's not necessary, <laughs> right? And that's that's a very common trope that you find, and it starts kind of with stories of people like Phryne and Praxitilis, that trope that obviously the, the artist and his model must also have an erotic connection to. Mm-hmm. They have to be in a relationship of some kind. Um, and that's, you know, obviously we know that that's not necessary to create art, but it's a story <laughs> that like gets told and told and told and told. And when artist yeah. models become sort of popular again, you know, especially in the 19th century, Oh, those stories, they start flying around, you know, absolutely. Um, People are Mm -hmm. telling those same exact kinds of stories um, and often connected to images of Frenny too. Um, It goes all the way, kind of circles all the way back around again.
4: It's a very niche question because everything you're saying makes me think of this. But like, did anyone ever make the connection between them and Pygmalion and Galatea?
5: Oh, that's a great, great question. Um, I think that... Okay, so uh, there's a scholar named Pat Rosenmeier who's worked a lot on that letter of Alciphron, And she says it's like a reverse Pygmalion, where mm. the statue comes to life and is Frinny and gets to speak, right? So Alciphron's yeah. giving giving voice to that. Um, the other connection there is that the statue, the Aphrodite of Knidos, that Praxiteles supposedly sculpts based on Frinny, there's a whole body of stories about that statue that aren't, they don't make the connection to Frenny, but there's a whole body of stories where people see the statue and they're like driven to, they want to make love to it. Um, mm-hmm. It very famously has a stain on its back, on its, well, not on its back, on its butt, <laughs> um, a semen stain from a young man who fell in love with it and at Knidos, And he um, contrived to have himself locked into the sanctuary at night And made love to it from behind. Um, (laughs) But, like, because he had fallen in love. So there's this idea that, like, statues um, can be made in certain ways by such talented artists that you can't quite tell the difference between them and a living woman. (laughs) And so... There's like a Pygmalion vibe. I won't I won't say yeah. the connection is as direct, but yeah. but you know, going back to those epigrams I was talking about where the statues kind of come to life, there's a, in Greek literature there's a really strong thread of this idea of statues being not not animated if that makes any sense like yeah. that they're kind of alive in a way and in the way that they affect you when you look at them, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, that they can make you do things. And it's almost like they're alive. And so I think that that whole thing with Frinny kind of comes all the way back around. Um, mm-hmm. And I will say Alciphron, who writes that letter where she's inviting Praxiteles to make love to her, the, when she says, we're not going to defile anything, she uses the same verb for stain, uh, defile, that is used <laughs> yeah. often in the stories about the statue. Uh, Aphrodite of Knidos. So I think Elsifron, like he can, he made those connections there. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, so there's all these, all these layers, right? And they all come together in the, in the stories about this one woman, and, and it's like everyone sort of wants to attach every possible thing they can to her.
4: I, it's just so much fun. I mean. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just told things about the ancient world and it just reminds me how much I love it uh, because the idea (laughs) that there is a famous stain on that statue makes me so (laughs) happy.
5: Well, I think, too, this is what I realized my own personal sort of taste in like literature and, and film and stuff is very much like connected to the kinds of literature that preserves the story of the stories of Frinny, because it's mm. all these little fragments. It's like it's like a whole compendium of fun facts about Frinny or fun facts about so-and-so or, you know, about classical Athens. And I'm like, you know, what? I really enjoy a
4: fun fact. So so do I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's wonderful. Can do you? Can you share more about the other trial that Neaira? Oh, yes.
5: Okay, so Neaira um, is this woman who is accused of having been a sex worker, um, and then passing off, or living with an Athenian man as though they're married, and passing mm. off her daughter as an Athenian, full Athenian citizen, and marrying mm-hmm. her to a man uh, who then takes on one of the highest political offices in Athens, which means that her daughter has to um, act as a priestess of Dionysus. And it's this really like you, you, the Athenians do not want anyone who is not Athenian. And by that they mean Athenian mother and Athenian father um, Mm -hmm. taking part in these things. So it's a real scandal that they were able to infiltrate sort of that, that far into Athenian society. However, Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say we only have as with so many court cases we only have the one side so we only right. have the speech against Naira right And so if we're going to take all of this at face value um you know they're trying very hard to make her look like a nasty sex worker we do not want to say anything good about this woman.
3: Yeah. Um, and like
5: I said, they use language uh, very carefully. Um I'm sort of uh yeah, they they use language very carefully. They insult her by the end of the speech that you know they call her basically a down and dirty whore, basically. Mm -hmm. Um so she's we have to be really careful with this story, but you know, as someone who's interested in the lives of women in antiquity. It's the most fulsome biography we have of a woman from the fourth
4: century, right? Yeah, so I mean, still, it's invaluable regardless. Like, it and is. And also, she sounds yeah. very cool. Like, even though they're trying to make her sound bad, like, she sounds very cool, even if she did do all
5: that stuff. well, her I mean, her life, this, the story that's told, again, it's meant to be insulting, but when you read it with mm-hmm. a sympathetic eye, yeah. um, her I mean, she's brought into sex work as a child. And she is sold and then she becomes freed, but she's freed because she has former clients who pay for this. And she's basically mm-hmm. uh, stays with them and lives with them and is clearly sexually available to them. Um, she then gets involved with other men. She travels around and, and I think we might even think is trafficked. Right. She's moved between Corinth and Athens for different occasions. Um, And so she's really vulnerable. And then even um, as this sort of speaker is telling her story, when she gets to Athens and she's living in a more long-term relationship with this fellow, there are stories he tells where um, they're at a banquet and she is having sex with everyone there and is getting drunk. And then um, some of the enslaved people in the household come and have sex with her. And so it's supposed to be insulting about her. But when you really think about the vulnerability of an actual person in a circumstance like that, whether whether it's true or not it's plausible
4: mm-hmm. and just
5: that is is actually really like deeply saddening and mm-hmm. so you know the more you read this speech the more you you just think about oh my goodness if this is telling the story of a real woman and these things really happen to that real individual it's horrific mm-hmm. actually right like she was mm-hmm. abused and, and taken advantage of um so it's a it, it's I think when we think about, again, think about the Hetairai, we get so, so sort of carried away with the artist's model and the this and the that, that the the vulnerabilities of women like this, even if they had become wealthy are still really mm-hmm. serious um, and really yeah. intense. Yeah.
4: Well, and I think it almost like, it just makes it more kind of empowering that she did succeed in like getting herself that power and passing herself off as an Athenian and her daughter and everything. Like, It just Mm -hmm. feels like, you know, I mean, way to go after a life like that and being able to do that. It just, I mean, I know the Athenians would have been mad, but like, I think it sounds like- Well, I mean, part of me is like,
5: well, don't set up this horrible misogynist society if you don't want someone to come in and turn it on its head, right?
4: Exactly. Like, it's it's Athens. Like, they were, I mean, the women often did not have it great. And so if she was able to, like, make it pretty good for her by Athenian standards, like- Yeah, I mean, it just feels like more power to her because, yeah, (laughs) they were not setting anyone up for success.
5: (laughs) Yeah, well, make it as good as you can for yourself Mm -hmm. in these in these really nasty scenarios, and and so that's kind of what I I think. And again, these are very rare stories of women, I think, being Mm -hmm. able to to live these lifestyles or can't have been there would have been like a handful, I imagine. Um, But you know, this idea that you know you have these strictures that you're forced to operate within right but here you are maybe doing things that are unexpected or you know and and I want to be careful when I talk about this cuz I'm not I'm not I don't want to be one of those people who's like well obviously all the rest of those enslaved sex workers weren't you know working hard enough <laughs> I don't want to ever sort of give that impression, right? That sort of neoliberal, oh, they should have pulled themselves oh, up by yeah. their bootstraps. Um, I, I do but, not think any of my listeners would think that. I would certainly. Okay, good, good. Okay, I want to be really careful there about that, though. God, um, yeah. But, you know, a woman like and um, you know, the fact that she was able to be, be so sort of compelling and of such ongoing interest to people, you know, it, it also, I think, speaks to people's discomfort or... Um, Discomfort is the right word. Their discomfort with kind of that misogynistic system that's set up to ultimately kind of control women. Even within that system, people were super compelled by people like Frenny. They're showing up mm. on comic stages. Their characters, their punchlines are you know they were they were trying to digest. The role of a woman like Frinny in a society Mm -hmm. like that, that didn't really have a
4: role for her. And she was creating her own, basically. Yeah. It it makes me think, like, I I, obviously I often wonder about this and I don't know anyone who reasonably couldn't. But just like the things that women must have talked about amongst themselves that we don't know, you know, and like, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> like oh especially yeah, when it comes to someone like this, like I just want to know what what the Athenian women well, you know, I don't mean technical Athenian women, I mean women in Athens. You know, yeah. what were they thinking and talking to each other about when this was all going on? And I yeah yeah I just want to imagine.
5: <laughs> okay, so I've mentioned him already. One of my favorite favorite authors from the ancient world is this fellow Alciphron, writing in kind of roughly the second century CE, kind of end of the second mm. century. Um, he's one of those authors writing in Greek about classical Athens under the Roman Empire, right? He's recreating it. And he is, mm-hmm. to me, the Wes Anderson of the ancient world. He, <laughs> because he recreates this world in such detail. But, you know, you've seen a Wes Anderson movie, you're like, oh, yeah, there's the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's set in pre-war Europe. How do I know that? Well, I can, I can oh, if I really look closely at the details. They've actually been kind of invented by Wes Anderson. So you're, you're forced to kind of look at his artistry while you're enjoying mm-hmm. this nostalgic image. So that's what Elsifron does. He writes fictional letters and he has four books of them. And the fourth book is called Letters of Hatairai. It is letters written by the hetairai of Athens, so some of them are the famous ones like Frinni, to each other about sort of their daily lives and what's going on. So there's the letter from Frinni to Praxiteles, there's a couple letters about the court case, right, um, of Frinni. But it is, it's sort of the speculative way to think about like, what would these women have said to each other? What might Mm -hmm. they have talked about, right? What are they interested in? And so it's this attempt, obviously, by a male author, but to kind of harness these women's voices and to think about how are these women thinking about their own lives. And that's why I love it because of course we're in this space where we have next to no words by women themselves. Right. But these are like Mm -hmm. at least purporting to be the words of these women. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, if if I could find like a real letter written by Frinny to one of her pals, I would, that's like a document I would give anything for.
4: Yeah. He that makes me think and I've not read enough of this to know kind of how it comes across. It makes me think of Lucian because I recently mm-hmm. kind of did some more digging into him and oh, I know yeah, he a lot of like, dialogues like that. Yeah, I've still only yeah. read The True History, which is a piece of art. Um, but but yeah, now I'm interested in all the dialogues that he wrote, too, mostly because of how much I love The True History. Yeah,
5: no, I I mean, Lucian, he writes so many different kinds of things, and they're all, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of similar to what what Elsevran is doing, stepping back into the world of classical Athens, um, stepping into kind of this, this, uh, like, created nostalgic space. Um, oh, nice. And of course, Lucian does it. He's a little bit more wry about it, a little bit more pointed yeah. than Alcifron is. But it's the same it's the same kind of process and they're part of the same kind of trend, literary trend that's happening. So please read more Lucian because you're all going to love I, it. There's like uh, this is for everyone listening. Please read more Lucian. You're never going to be sad about it. It's amazing. <laughs> but the, the, the so the Dialogues of the Courtesans, too, or that's what they're called, right? Dialogues of the mm-hmm. Um it's. I love them too. It's the same reason I love Greek tragedy. It's because you mm-hmm. have, again, it's not the actual voices of women, but it's someone like representing the voice of a woman, right? And you're trying mm-hmm. to like, incorporate just as a good playwright or a good fictional letter writer, you're actually going to have to tap into some kind of empathy for their position in society to write it mm-hmm. in a compelling and and effective way. So I, I, yeah, I'm just in love with anything like that that purports to to give the voice of a woman or give voice to a woman, even if it's written by a man.
4: <laughs> I mean, we have to take what we can get, right? I mean, it's why yeah. I love Euripides so much, because to me, <sighs> he's the one who actually wanted to know what women thought. And he was like, I'm going to actually examine them as real people. And like, you know, the other two playwrights do, they write great women. Don't get me wrong, but like mm-hmm. Euripides was clearly fascinated by them in a totally yeah. different way, at least in terms of what survives. like. Yes. It's just
5: the best. Uh, Well, I can, I am here to tell you also what does not survive does the same thing, (laughs) or at least the bits that we have that do survive. (laughs) Yes, the fragments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's the thing is, is with these women. Again, I think it comes down to, you have this really um, constricted society for women and the ideal Mm. for women is, is very, um, again, constricted. They don't have a lot of options. A path is very clearly laid out for them, ideally. But there are women who are not always following that path because of just life, right? Life is complicated and it never, ideals and realities are always different things. And so you have women like, um, you have characters like Medea, right? That someone like Euripides is going to write about and find super compelling. And then you have women like Frinny who who in a way become characters because of the way their stories are recorded and told. Um, But they're just so compelling to people, even in their own time. Because they don't, they're not following that idealized path that's been offered to women. And mm-hmm. and it's sort of like maybe you're offended by their presence in public, but you're also compelled. You're also super compelled. And, you, you mm-hmm. know, again, like finding a character like Medea is, you don't have to be, you don't have to agree with her choices to find her a really compelling character and a really well-written mm-hmm. character. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's just, especially when you're talking Athens in that general time period. like Yes. Yeah, I mean, there was, (laughs) you're going to take what you can get, or just like anything, yeah, that presents these women as not only like real and kind of complex characters, which is what I see in Medea and why I love her so much. But (laughs) like, just, yeah, the difference, like you're saying, like people who were just different than what Athenian or women in Athens were kind of required to be. I mean imagine how fascinating that would be. Mm-hmm. You might be like, I think whatever you're doing is horrifying and like against the gods, but it's still interesting. It's still Yeah, like, but I can't look away different. from it. Exactly.
5: Yeah. And I think yeah. I think for women like Frenny, the and the other like prominent hetairai And I think you really see this when you get to like the comedies and they're making fun of the mm. women so much um and and by name they're like Frinny's like a charybdis she swallows down a ship captain with the <laughs> ship too right like really you know you know some pretty nasty things or they're like um, oh a playwright Timocles says that um
4: wow he he else. has
5: a um he has a sort of a lyric passage in one of his comedies and he's naming all of the different right famous right and comparing them to monsters like Scylla and charybdis <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a real moment it's really uh, when he does that. Um, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, you like, even if I think you're terrible and greedy and you're getting all these, you know, men's money, I'm going to keep paying attention to what you're doing, you know? Yeah. Um, but again, I think that that's also a way to kind of navigate the complexities of a society that does not offer any other options to women or many options to women. And they're trying to figure out how they feel about this. Uh, mm-hmm. I always think of like, you can imagine like Frinny back in the day, kind of like, is it Regina George from Mean Girls being like, mm-hmm. why are you so obsessed with me? You know, <laughs> yeah. Comic playwrights, <laughs> you know, you're always, uh, but of course, it, like for someone like Frinny, that adds to her notoriety. And so, mm-hmm. like, if you're the kind of Hitira that can be named as a punchline, and everyone in Athens is like, oh yeah, that Frinny, we all know about her, that's not a disadvantage to you either right? No. In terms of, you know, being famous and sought after your companionship, your, uh, for, you know, your sex being sought after. Um, yeah. So you're, you're kind of a name brand business. by that point. And in fact, there's actually yeah. one of the anecdotes about Frinny, um, because of course, the Hitai Rai in anecdotes are famously witty, that this is one of the things they're all, they're always kind of getting the better of all these wealthy, notable men they're with. And so this is Frinny when she's older, apparently. And someone mm-hmm. says, like, how can you charge that much or whatever? She's like, oh, it's my reputation. You know, just my reputation is so, so famous that I can charge full price for the dregs. Yeah. So, <laughs> right, for one. what's left. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, She has a lot of good one-liners uh, over time. Um, Amazing. There's a, there's a really, a really good one where a fellow wants to sleep with her. And he says, you know, how much is it? And she says, that'll be uh, basically 100 drachma. And the guy's like, that's you, you didn't charge the guy yesterday that much. And she's like, yeah, but I actually wanted to sleep with him. So if you hang around till I want to, you can get a deal too. (laughs) Uh, But basically, they're always sort of offering these little sort of funny little punchlines, always getting the best of the men that are around them. So.
4: yeah mm-hmm. I mean it's refreshing like obviously you know we're talking about the the like the very horrifying nature of their lives otherwise like it wasn't yeah. you know obviously all good but like it is so nice to be to still have that kind of lightness attached to it and just imagine that you know hopefully some were able to find that kind of lightness or to like enjoy aspects of their life and work and like yeah, I mean, I hope you know. I hope that's mm-hmm. often true that they were. Well, able again, to, like, like finding finding the
5: power that was available to them yeah. in these situations, right? There's, it's not you know. Again, I'm not going to say that she ha- she was fr- like fully free to do whatever, but yeah. she can navigate the world in a way that isn't available to an Athenian wife, and she can say things to men that a typical Athenian <laughs> wife or daughter or whatever can't say. So yeah. she, you know, again, so. So these are all anecdotes, and it becomes kind of like a standard of the genre of anecdotes about Rai right? that they are witty. So whether they were mm-hmm. actually witty in real life is a different thing. But one can imagine there were probably some pretty good opportunities <laughs> for them yeah. to be witty, right? Like, again, it's, it's this, um, it, it allows us to create a space in which we can speculate, about what Mm -hmm. their lives might have been the possibilities that could have been there for a woman like that. And I mean, this is one of them. And I just, I, you know, as, as a woman who likes a good singer herself, um, I love the idea of them just sort of unloading on these really wealthy, powerful men. Yes. Yeah.
4: Well, and I mean, if, if it becomes that much of kind of like a trope about them, you got to think that there was definitely some accuracy in there, whatever level it got, you know, expanded upon, but like, yeah. It, it came from somewhere, the idea that they are witty. And, like, what a great opportunity! I mean, the guys are going to pay you for sex. You might as well have some fun with it. Exactly. Like- <laughs> Yeah. exactly or and like and the other thing that you see in
5: that one anecdote where she's like well wait around and see if I want to sleep with you yeah. is that you see like a little bit of uh, what I would consider a kind of sexual agency that's available mm-hmm. to to her as a sex worker of a certain status not available to mm-hmm. all but like that mm-hmm. she's kind of making use of that the agency that's available to her and that's, again, it's yeah. kind of, we were talking about tragic heroines earlier. That's kind of, that's why I love tragic heroines. They're in these really constricted circumstances, but they're reaching for that agency that they can find and they're making use yeah. of it. Um, sometimes in horrible ways, but, but yeah, they're, you, you know. kill your
4: kids, but it's your own decision. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Sorry, I always <laughs> have to bring it back to and make
4: light of that. Is it good? <laughs> Probably not, but I do it all the time.
5: <laughs> you know, Medea would be laughing too, I'm sure
4: exactly she gets me (laughs) yeah
5: yeah but I I mean I also think with Frini like there's this idea too that she like even she starts to get fun of in certain ways too so I was Mm -hmm. saying earlier the Hetairi and the philosophers are often connected and there's a famous story about her and uh, this fellow Xenocrates he's like the head of the academy he's like a really conservative old crusty philosopher and she's like that's it she bets some people she's like I can go I'm gonna go seduce him and so she shows up at his house and she's like, oh, some people are chasing me. You have to let me in and I've got to stay here overnight. And he's like, okay, come on in. And he only has one couch, right? Or like a bed sure. be- bed couch in the ancient world. They're kind of the same thing. And so they have to lie there together. And she's like doing her best to kind of be sexy frenny and nothing happens. <laughs> and she loses the bet because he he cannot be swayed right he's a man of the mind even the most beautiful sex worker cannot do a thing for him and she comes out but of course because she's really witty she's like oh we made the bet about a man not a statue so she's you know she's she can be gotten the best of too but she's still sort of yeah. at least again in the anecdotes she's always still kind of on top of things which is one thing i really love about about the stories about her
4: yeah I mean, okay. How many more anecdotes are there? Can you share more? I was oh find, like, goodness. This is, this um, I'm wonderful. trying to think <laughs> of like which ones, which ones there are. Which would be so? Sort of, so sort of, those are kind of the key
5: ones, right? Like this yeah. is the thing, and the thing that I, I reflect on with a woman like Phrynne is, yeah, you feel, and this is how it works with a woman like Aspasia, a woman like Phrynne. You feel like you know her whole story just as well as you know like Pericles' story or Alcibiades. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, oh yes, yeah, someone wrote a whole, Plutarch, of course, uh, wrote a whole biography of him. There's like a whole narrative of of those yeah. of most of those really noted men. And with Frinny it's like here's an anecdote here, here's an anecdote there. That's all mm-hmm. we've got, but we because of the way that these sort of fragmentary stories work, our brains are kind of putting them all together creating a narrative. And it's only when you look closely that you're like, "Oh, I don't know much about her birth." I don't, I know nothing about her death. The only kind of, the Mm -hmm. only story we have is that one I just told you, where she's like, ah, I'm selling the dregs, right? Um, Right. That's all we know. We don't know what happened to her in the end, finally. But we have kind of created a fulsome image from these fragments um, on our own. And just like we were talking about earlier, she's the most famous, famously beautiful woman in fourth century Athens. What Mm -hmm. does she look like? The only thing we know is that she's pale skinned.
4: right Right. we know nothing else yeah i think a lot too lately about what pale skinned might have meant to the greeks too because i think there's a level of i mean of course there's a level of like whiteness that is like put upon ancient greece now right to like Mm -hmm. westernize it and make make it this like origin of quote-unquote western civilization and i forget how this came up was like on twitter recently But like, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about somebody in because whatever the context was, it was like in Anatolia in Turkey, like, what does pale skinned mean there? Like, it doesn't necessarily mean what we think of as pale skinned, like it's pale Mm -hmm. in, in context to what they know. And yeah. so, yeah, I just think that's so interesting to think about, too.
5: Well, and and a lot of the sort of modern interpretations of her, especially in painting from like the 19th century, mm-hmm. is referencing also the statue, the Aphrodite of Knidos, or just statues right. sort of in general, which at that point, right, um, this is like after the 18th century art historians have, have really you know, thought about the white marble and they want it to be the white marble, Mm -hmm. ignoring all the painting and and Mm -hmm. other gilding and things that were actually on ancient statues. And so the painters are depicting her often as being like marble white. So she basically Mm -hmm. looks like a statue in the paintings. There's a really famous painting of her on trial before the Areopagus uh, by a painter named Jerome. And in that one, it's her skin is white as white can be, right? Like whiter than marble. And so when people depict her, and again, this, these are more modern depictions, but there's another painter, Boulanger, who has a, a painting of her kind of reclining on a bed. And she, uh, his model, I think, was Italian. Um, but they're they're using like a lot of at that time what are considered like uh, Italian models, Jewish models, t- who are considered to be exotic at that time, right? right. <laughs> and so yeah. like the so when you know he exhibits this at the academy and people look at this painting, they're like, oh, that's not what we think Frinny should look like, right? That's oh my goodness, and one of them calls her fat, like, and, and she is just distinctly oh not goodness. fat. Um, yeah. Oh, they always, they love to do this, right? Um, yeah. There's another painter, a Polish painter later who paints her and they say she looks like a man, one of the critics. It's like, so the thing about, you know, Frinny is that in the stories, in the ancient stories, she is, she can be whatever you want her to be. Whatever yeah. you think is beautiful, whatever you think is, pit, whatever you can project because she's a fragment. And then I think that's mm-hmm. also what makes her compelling is that because she is fragmentary, Um, That you can do whatever you want. You can fill in the blanks however you want. That is the most pleasurable and satisfying to you. So she Mm -hmm. becomes and I think that's something that's common with the way we tell stories about women, prominent women, even in 2023, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That these sort of fragmentary narratives where we don't really allow ourselves to know them deeply and meaningfully gives us a certain kind of power over them to to mold them into whatever we want them to be. And mm. if someone presents to you a version of her or a, of a woman like Frenny that isn't what you thought and what you expected and what you took pleasure from, then people tend to get really defensive and angry about it mm-hmm. too. The, I mean, at least these these art critics, you know, the different yeah. um, images of her. But yeah, so the, the thing about Frenny is like, we we don't know enough of these details to really know her. But that, I think, is another source of what has made her compelling over time.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I mean, it sounds like so much of the ancient world with just the fragmentary nature of it all, right? And like what yeah. that's so much more interesting than if we knew everything, like just the big open questions. Oh, yeah. And I, I really think, yeah, with fragments, it um, it allows us
5: to think in different ways about things to kind of um, we can hyper focus on some details because that's all that we have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or we can be more imaginative, and sometimes that speculation can be really generative. It can it can take us out of the assumptions that we've made about the ancient world as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I love fragments. I wrote a whole dissertation about them, but <laughs> um, it's to me those are some of the most compelling parts of the ancient world, and they're also mm-hmm. when we look closely at them, they're often the ones that contradict. The dominant narratives that we have about Mm -hmm. the ancient world. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah. I just, I want to learn everything all the time.
3: at purdouglobal.edu.
4: This also made me think of Helen of Troy, um, or of Sparta, rather, but like yes. obviously mythologically different, and she's not as fragmentary. Um, but at the same time, you know this notion of like the most beautiful person in the world whatever that might mean but then specifically the ways that she has been made into so many different things Mm -hmm. and like whitened (laughs) to such a degree it's always so interesting like I um this is I realize this is going to come up in a couple conversations now because I it's recently done but I spoke with Ruby Blondell who's just written a book called Hell of Troy in Hollywood yes well we talked all about this. but like specifically, of course, because this was in reference to Hollywood, but like the things that Helen has become. Uh, yeah, it was just absolutely, absolutely fascinating conversation. But it just made me think of all of this because it sounds like the same kind of thing, which is this notion of beauty.
5: Yeah, I am so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad you Great. thought of Helen because <laughs> I have a theory that I don't really explore in this book, but I will in an art- article at some point, I think that she is like a human fourth century real life Helen because of that it certainly
4: sounds like that yeah yeah
5: and part of the reason the connection that i think is actually in the trial right when she Mm -hmm. you know um is revealed and everyone's sort of like gawking at her and their reactions are not under their own control anymore is that that's sort Mm -hmm. of helen whenever you see her depicted because helen you know on vase paintings it's you know they're kind of generic in a sense, I apologize to art historians, um, but but often depictions of Helen, like she's not depicted as being too terribly different than other women or goddesses around mm-hmm. her, but it's how people are responding to her that tells you that she's beautiful. So mm-hmm. we don't need to know, Friddy looked like this, her nose was shaped like this, her breasts look like this, to know that everyone in that trial was shocked by her beauty.
4: Mm-hmm. To,
5: you know, that's what tells us that she's the most beautiful. So she's like Helen in that way but there's actually even more of a connection. I think, so I don't think that that happened. I think she was probably really on trial. There's a comic Mm. play that's a few decades after the trial would have been um, that mentions it, uh, but doesn't mention her being revealed to everyone. Mm. It talks about her going around and supplicating the jury, right? Going to them Mm. and saying, please you know, don't put me to death or whatever. So I think that that idea of her revealing herself is actually connected to stories of Helen, um, and that we see in tragedy in particular, because famously when, uh, Menelaus, when they're sacking Troy and they find Helen, yes. what does Menelaus want to do to Helen? He wants to kill her. And what does she yes.
4: do? Yes. She, she just gets naked.
5: Yeah. She's like, check it out. Yeah. Look how gorgeous I am. And he's like, well, okay, let's go live happily ever after then, sweetheart. Um, And this is famously what women do when they are um, beseeching someone. It's not always sexual. Like, Hecuba does it in the Iliad to Hector, right? She reveals her breast. She's like, this is where you nursed as a baby. Don't right. go into battle. Clytemnestra does it to Orestes, but Orestes is like, I don't care. You murderous, horrible <laughs> yeah. woman, right? It doesn't, and it also doesn't work because he has a nurse, right? Like she she didn't, right. didn't really nurse him. And the nurse is a yeah. character in that play. But so I think that this is a reference to all these scenes that are mostly referenced in tragedy, but have this yeah. epic, uh, epic history. And there is a fragment, speaking of fragments, of a poem by a, a lyric poet named Tisichorus where the greeks encounter helen and they're like they're angry at her and it's almost like a courtroom it's sort of pseudo judicial yeah. and they would like to and they're but by looking at her beauty they actually they they effectively acquit her so to speak they don't attack mm. helen she survives and so i think you know the people who are writing these stories they know every detail of the history of greek literature especially epic especially tragedy and i think they're mm-hmm. like this is this is it. This is what is happening. So I think she's, she's another Helen for many reasons, but I think in this scene, they're like, she's just like Helen. And that connection is explicit. Yeah. Yeah.
4: That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm, is this is going to work out really well because I'm pretty sure this episode is going to air like right after my Helen of Troy and Hollywood one. Oh, um, awesome. Oh, that's, that's hilarious
5: yeah. that uh, after, right after Ruby. I was just visiting yeah. Ruby in Seattle last month, too, and we had long oh. conversations about this. So I'm very – I'm like oh, super excited it. about this. Yeah, this is wonderful.
4: Oh, that's so great. Well, they were so fun to talk to you, so. Uh,
5: <laughs> oh, great. Ruby – like Ruby is – I have I have said yeah. this to Ruby before. There's like the the rubiness of Ruby cannot be. Yeah, like it is so essential <laughs> to Ruby as a person, right? To them as a person. But,
4: it's so yeah. funny, and I didn't even like. So I didn't. I would heard the name before. I think because I when I'd written about Helen, um. But actually, Ruby's publicist came to me and was just like, "Here's this book," and I was like, "Um, hell yeah, <laughs> yeah.
5: yeah." No, yeah. it's and it's it's cool because Ruby's work on Helen and like the reception of Helen kind of, for me, was a way for me to think about, you know, Frinny and how she was, became this, she became a cultural phenomenon again in the 19th century, particularly in France, yeah. where she has this amazing afterlife. And the parallels with whatever we think really, or, or would have happened with a figure like Frinny in the fourth century are so uh, intense. Like as I was doing this research, I was every single detail that came up was too perfect almost. So she kind of, she experiences this Mm -hmm. renaissance with painting. There's the Neo-Grec movement of these academic painters and they're painting like scenes from antiquity of anything in in great detail, right? And so Jerome Mm -hmm. paints this famous painting of Phryne in the moment of her revelation in front of the Areopagus. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is, it's quite a painting. Again, it's exceptionally detailed. Phryne herself is standing on top of a little podium, Um, and she's nude uh, but she's sort of from behind and she's turned her head to the side so you again you can't see like her you can't see those amazing breasts you can't see really her face in great detail so again you can do this process of like you know of of um shaping her in whatever way you find attractive she looks like Mm -hmm. a statue the pose is copying the aphrodite and of pelle is like the Mm -hmm. coming out of the sea with your hand on either side of your head again i'm acting this all out on a
4: podcast (laughs) I mean the the thing is I can picture it just even before you act it out but just like yeah the all of it. So and also this will be posted with a promo and my lovely Michaela can pull mm-hmm. out all those images and then people will know exactly
5: what it is. Excellent. You're doing. I can I can help you with that. Yeah. Um, I mean Perfect. these are these are the kind of images that have saturated our culture so much that even if you, you don't yeah. know who Botticelli is, even if you don't yep. even know who Aphrodite is, you're like, "Oh, I've seen lots of pictures of art of naked ladies posed in a certain way." And that's all coming yeah. from these ancient images. Um, yeah so this painting it makes such a splash right and people are Mm -hmm. so compelled they love it they get little tiny statues of Frinny in this pose to put in their houses Um, she gets used in advertising like uh, advertising cigarettes and stuff people are so into it but there's a model behind this right so this is when people are starting to use nude models so we have Mm -hmm. that um, sort of resonance with the the story of Frinny and Praxiteles Um, so there's an actual nude model. She's actually the inspiration for one of the characters in La Boheme, um, for Mimi in La Boheme. Like, and again, even if you don't know La Boheme, you know Rent, all of these things mm-hmm. have just like, it's, it's like dropping a, a pebble in a still pond and it just ripples and ripples and ripples. So Frenny's cultural mm-hmm. resonances are just everywhere. Um, but basically, it, this is the same time as the French artists, the academic sort of snooty patooty artists are using these models. The models are also a lot of the same women who are also appearing on stage in these spectacles at places like the Moulin Rouge that are like, hmm. they're showing nude women or if they're not showing nude women, they're showing nearly nude women right? And so there's this great interest in sort of late 19th century Paris in, in naked ladies and how to get them on stage, plus the story mm-hmm. of Frinny, who is famously naked. So the great thing about the story of <sighs> Frinny is that you're telling a story from ancient Greece. So you have that cultural cachet, and it's a way for you to get a, a naked or nearly naked lady on stage. And so mm-hmm. there are operas, there are performances at the Folie Bergère, where the actress Um, you know, she strips down and sort of the final scene, but she's wearing a flesh tone bodysuit and she's backlit. Right. So again, you're not seeing the details, but your, your brain is filling them all in. Um, And, and she becomes this, yeah, get this really famous cultural touchstone in 19th century Paris again, and and is like a household name basically yet again, and all of the real women. So just like Frinny is the real woman behind possibly the statue, at least the stories. Um, all of the real women have these really compelling public stories and they're women who are sometimes associated with sex work one of them mm-hmm. um has an affair one of the women who plays for has an affair with um the king of belgium right mm-hmm. like they like so there's this also this this um this sort of prurient interest in their sex lives and an association mm-hmm. of these nude models with sex work. And so all of the themes that are present in the fourth century and then in the, the other ancient stories told over the you know subsequent centuries pop up all together again in 19th century France. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it blew my mind. Every one of these details, every yeah. one of these women is like a really compelling woman, but again, who, about whom we have fragmentary stories. Or we have mm-hmm. echoes, right, of these different models, you know, and they pop up in stories like La Bohème. So there's echoes of them, but we we don't have their story, and it's very similar to a woman like Franny, where we just don't have a fulsome biography, but we're putting mm-hmm. it all together from these fragmentary anecdotes. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's absolutely fascinating how she she has this resurgence again, you know, in the nineteenth century. So
4: yeah, I had I mean, I feel like I didn't know enough about for any anyway, but I certainly have no idea <laughs> of this. I always think about that kind of thing as like being so purely mythological rather than somebody like like her, you know? It's I feel like that's a. I mean, I guess if, if she was quite so, you know, famous in the the ancient world too, like it makes sense. And certainly if there are these mm-hmm. statues of her at Delphi and thespi but like I just I mean, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah it's so much more exciting than mythology, which is funny for me to say. But it's so much better. Well, it's a
5: a, it's just a it's a kind of mythology, right? Yeah,
4: yeah. So it's it's
5: mythology that has the kernel of a real person at at Mm -hmm, its center. But it really it it speaks to in the same way that studying mythology does, right? It speaks to what do people find compelling about human stories? Mm. What I mean, people are always and forever going to find a sexy lady, right? A hot woman is always going to be compelling no matter what you think is hot, right? Like the idea of a hot woman will always be a story people want to tell. Um, And, you know, and so I've been thinking about this so much. Every time I think of like women – Famous women in the public eye, right? And I think of, like, the stories of Marilyn Monroe operate in a similar way, right? Her story, mm-hmm. the way we've broken it down into these little fragmentary bits, and we, yeah, we so um, put so much onto her, right? So it's like Helen, it starts with Helen, but then there's Friddy, and then there's, you know, Marilyn Monroe, and then there's all these different different figures um, that we will always and always find compelling.
4: Yeah. <laughs> It's also fascinating. Um, Now I can't stop thinking about how also like just to bring it back to Helen too, that like she, I mean, and this is true for like most of Greek mythology, but like, you know, she's not described either. You can also put onto her whatever type of beauty Mm -hmm. you find beautiful, whatever type of person you find attractive. And it's so, yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to have that. And I think it does, it is just sort of a mythology thing because of the way these stories are told. The intention was not, to describe like we would today in prose but like still it, it makes this real it's just so different in these contexts where it is about you know the quote-unquote most beautiful people because it really does mean like whatever you want it to mean
5: yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and that's why I think all of these like art critics were having such a strong reaction because they're like, no, yeah. I wanted it to be this. And this is mm-hmm. what I think is attractive and beautiful. And then you presented me with a different option, which is equally valid, but it's mm-hmm. not the option that I am attached to. And it's a, there's also like a fundamental, I think, identification with what you find attractive, what you find compelling, that when someone mm-hmm. says, well, maybe it's something else, you have this really strong visceral reaction the strong no to it Mm -hmm. yeah
4: yeah yeah i mean it's so funny too especially in those kind of contexts because like everything is going to be ultimately based on the culture that existed around the creator and so it's like yeah i mean you can be mad that franny Franny isn't one what you like want her to be but regardless the person creating her is creating her in what would you say 19th century france like yeah so you know, it's, she's going to be based on that more than she's going to be based on the Frinny of the ancient world anyway. Like all of it is just completely subjective. And, and that's what mm. makes it interesting. Yeah.
5: It, well, exactly. And I think, and that's so true, like with Frinny, because almost in her own lifetime, there start to be versions of her. So even when right. people have a Frinny, like the real Frinny to compare to, right. <sighs> then she's a, like I said, a punchline in these comic plays or, mm. you know, she, she's, sort of, she already is the subject of anecdote in her own lifetime. And so sort of Frinny, the real woman and Frinny, the woman of of fragments, the the stories, right? They are diverging in her own lifetime already.
2: Mm -hmm.
5: And I mean, that's also something to think about when we think about fame and, and reputation and all the rest, right? Like how that happens, but it happens in a very specific way to women as well, the things that mm-hmm. we focus on for the anecdotes that we mm-hmm. circulate, for the stories that we like to tell, for what we find compelling, right? And so in the case, mm-hmm. Frinny just shows us, right, we want to know a bit about her sex life, we want to think about how hot she is, <laughs> we want to think about her without her clothes on, right? All of those things show us that there are very specific things that happen to women in the public eye that don't necessarily mm-hmm. happen to men, right? Like I was, mm-hmm. I, I've thought about this a lot and thought about, you know, are there other men who undergo kind of a similar process, right? The only one I can think of is maybe like Alcibiades because mm-hmm. we love to tell stories about how he was sort of a young hottie and how he dressed in public and how he presented himself. Mm-hmm. But we have those stories, but they combine with, again, that more fulsome biography.
4: Yeah, We know what family but he's it from, also- you know. Yeah, we know things about him, but even just the way you're saying that and using him as an example, I think that's such it's really telling because the stuff that we think about him is often um like dramatic and salacious in similar ways to to women's stories. Yeah, it's you it's know? kind of female like, coded
5: in a way, right? E- exactly. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's
4: exactly the right description. Like he's not you know, he it, all the sort of yeah, the salacious details are not because he's this big, masculine, manly man. Like it's mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's coded towards more feminine aspects.
5: Yeah, that,
4: and if, and you know, I mean, wild stuff too, like chipping dicks off of herms, which is the greatest thing in the world. But <laughs> do you
5: know what? Yeah, do you know it was the faces what? that got damaged of the herms. Sorry, with, really? Yeah, but a fun fact. Yeah, you well, would that's think
4: disappointing.
5: the most obvious thing to knock off a herm would yeah. be. The genitals, right? Because a herm is, yeah. of course, a statue with just a head and genitals on a pillar.
4: But no, they damaged the faces. Oh, that's disappointing. I, I
5: know. Have... I know. When I yeah. found that out, I was like, oh, come on. Do better. Do better. Yeah. Athenian
4: rascals. I mean, yeah. Regardless, herms are some of my favorite things from the ancient world because they're just oh, so absurd. I love and explaining and I them. Love them. I'm like, oh, yeah, same. At, I've done it. This so goes many at your front
5: door. <laughs> this is how you protect your property. It's a head and some genitals.
4: <laughs> it's just the best i like they've just become kind of my thing and i get so excited when i see them. and the you know when I you go to
5: one? you go to greece and you're looking for the replica yeah. statues
4: they don't have any yeah. herms no Come never on. they don't sell I think i mean because the they I sell know, though, because they, they do of course well everyone loves the dick yeah but like yeah and if, certainly the athenians but I think it's just because they're really niche. Well, I think of the Great Dionysia. I'm, I've got contacts. Yeah, Dixon. Um, but yeah, I wonder like what the general tourism aspect of Greece would actually if they'd be as interested in Herms as us nerds. Well, um, but
5: I, I bet you, maybe. I bet you they would. Like, they sell the preapices. Yeah. They sell the dirty playing cards, right, with pictures from yeah. vases. So, like, I've thought about this a lot while wandering around the souvenir shops of Greece. Um, but you know if I, I ever yeah I, and partially this is because my auntie would really like one to put in her garden so oh, oh like a big one yeah yeah she'd like oh, a herm for her garden right so oh. I'm like if I ever if anyone knows how to sculpt one I'm gonna I'll purchase it
4: <laughs> God, I, love, I love herms so much yeah, um, yeah. there's one in Epidavros, and I, I didn't know it was there and it, I sort of like just like walked and just suddenly it was there and I I don't know how many times I've been quite that excited at a Greek site and I yeah I fucking love her. Surprise, it's a herb. Uh, it's just there's so I mean, rarely fun. rarely are we happy mm. to like
5: stumble upon surprise genitals in the wild. So
4: oh, you but know, when yeah. Herms. yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. <laughs> this is hilarious.
4: Uh well, I I think that sort of everything you've been saying when it comes to Frenny, it's interesting to compare her to to like and obviously we can't do too much of this because it's already been an hour and 20 minutes, but I just keep thinking (laughs) of Sappho because she's this other like really fragmentary woman. Mm -hmm. But I think I thought of it most when you mentioned how we don't know how like anything about Franny's like at the end of her life or, you know, other than that great anecdote about when she's just like older. Um, And it's kind of nice because I always think about what Ovid did to Sappho's story where it's like, do we, you know before Ovid did we think that she killed herself over a man because it's the most bummer of an end Mm -hmm. for someone like Sappho and it's kind of just nice that I don't know Franny didn't get like rewritten in that way where we just kind of have a question mark instead
5: yeah where she can just sort of fade off into dignified obscurity
2: yeah
5: rather than yeah
4: because I don't I mean
5: again to get into the speculative space you know Mm -hmm. she so I mean she was famously wealthy so And I do think, again, if we can sort of say this is a fact, I do think that Frinny existed. She was on trial. um, You know, again, it probably didn't end that way. But I do think she was prominent and probably quite wealthy because she very famously, Mm -hmm. again, this is not an anecdote, but she offered to rebuild the walls of Thebes after Alexander the Great destroyed them. Now, again, because Frinny's super witty and super smart, it's not as simple as she's just like, I'm going to show off how wealthy I am. Thebes, of course, is not that far from Thespiae, her hometown. And Thebes is kind of, it's the bigger, more prominent city in in Boeotia. So it had torn down the walls of Thespiae and, in fact, sacked Thespiae in Mm -hmm. revenge because they had associated themselves um, against the Thebans, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had allied themselves against the Thebans. So it's also her saying like "f you." If you want walls, you got to come to a thespian yeah. to get them, right?
4: Yeah. Um,
5: but like again, so we know we know that she was like super wealthy at some point. So I do like to imagine again, if I'm speculating in the most hopeful speculation, she's living not not a bad end of her life because she can afford to,
3: right? Mm-hmm. She can.
5: You know, do whatever she she can exercise some of that agency, and so that's sort of like mm-hmm. the hopeful way to speculate about the end of her life slash career. Uh, yeah. But it is interesting. Again, she's a very beautiful woman, so often we don't want to sort of speculate on like what happens to aging women's bodies, right? True. Um, yeah. we so the drags, right? Notice it's it's this really yeah. sort of um, elusive comment. It's you know we're not talking about ah well Frenny looked this way and then this is what happened to her because. Mm-hmm again for that sort of pleasurable speculation on the beauty of someone you don't want the details because the details are going to sort of ruin the image actually
2: mm-hmm. but
5: yeah i do i do yeah. sort of hopefully speculate that she sort of lived an okay end of her life
4: yeah well i mean yeah. that's badass that you can be like i can rebuild the walls of troy or not troy of thieves <laughs> like she probably could have done that <laughs> i mean that would have been cool too uh, yeah i'm connecting it to the other most beautiful um But yeah, I mean, that's wonderful, especially at the thespiai connection, which also reminded me. And I know you said it's fairly certain that she was from thespiai. But when you first explained it and made the Eros connections and stuff, Mm -hmm. all I could think was also the rumor of Sappho being married to the guy Kirkulos of Andros. Where it's like, it's literally just like man from man or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. I I know like on Wikipedia, they say like dick from man island or whatever. Well, Um, I mean... It sounds
5: like a dick on that <laughs> island. <laughs> um, well, no, like I, I, I do think sometimes you're like, okay, that detail is right on the nose. It's too yeah. on the nose. But then when I started again, when I started looking into the 19th century receptions of Franny and I was like, oh my goodness, no, because these are not things anyone could have control over, these details. So yeah, it's po- and they're just a bit too perfect. So it's it is possible to me that there, are that some of those things are connected actually yeah. right and that it's not just a perfect literary connection but you know no, it's just enough just,
4: yeah it sounds more real than Sappho's too like it's not it's not the same it's more just yeah. like that's a lovely coincidence you know yeah the, this idea that yeah she's from a place with such like connections to eros, like that's just like, yeah. it's a good coincidence versus yeah being too on the nose yeah exactly yeah. exactly
5: Oh, but I think I Sappho's it. a great, a great comparison too, though, because she's this mm-hmm. woman that we have fragmentary knowledge of and we all write little mm-hmm. narratives that about her that sort of suit our needs at any given time. And it's, you know, mm. when people have thought about Sappho's sexuality over time, all of that has changed as people have thought sort of more, more broadly and differently about sexuality. All of these things change. So there will be more Frinnies, more versions of her. Right. That are mm-hmm. over time that suit the needs of any given time. Right. If, if I were to sit down and make a film about her now. Right. It would be very different to the ones that would, were made about her in the 50s. But it would yeah. suit my tastes and and this time yeah. and all of those things. And it's been true again, like that happened already in Frenny's own lifetime, And then started immediately to happen when we think about how her stories were recorded and passed down, you know, immediately in Alexandria, the Alexandrian scholars and comic authors who became obsessed with classical Athens, they Mm -hmm. did different things with the character of Frinni, or or the stories about Frinni. And then you get to the, you know, the Roman imperial authors, they're doing something even different. So There's always going to be more Sappho's, more Helen's, more Phrenys, depending on
4: Mm -hmm. what
5: the audience and the artist wants and needs.
4: Mm -hmm. I'm just glad we have some ladies from the ancient world.
5: (laughs) Oh, I mean, really, it it is. I always say, like, when people are like, okay, if you could have anything from the ancient world, you know, any text, and I'm like, okay, you know, yes, I would like a full copy of some of the fragmentary plays of Euripides, Mm
2: -hmm. but really,
5: I just would like a letter from one of these women, one letter. Mm -hmm. To a friend, like you were saying earlier, like to, to a peer, right. Just talking about like what they, what I did this morning, what my day looked like, you know, what, how I felt about this famous thing that happened. If I could have just one of those, oh, I, you know, or if I had a time machine,
4: right. Who would I talk to? Oh my God. I, I, that question is so unanswerable, but yeah, I mean, it would just be literally like, let me, I just want to know what women thought. (laughs) <laughs> for yeah. themselves yeah. without the influence of men. It yeah. seems so simple, and yet it is so, you know, impossible to know based on what we have. Yeah, Well, yeah, I'd be like,
5: Frinny, tell me what you really thought about some of your clientele.
4: Right? Yes. What
2: were yeah. your
5: feelings about these people, uh, these men that you you were associated with? And and honestly, too, even though I've been saying like the whole thing about Frinny is that we don't know what she looked like, I would love to know what she looked
4: like. Well, I would yeah. love to yeah, see... What-
5: you know, what, what was she, what was thought to be beautiful, how she groomed herself, right? Like the, like all of that. I would just love mm-hmm. to see what was her, what was her morning routine? Like, you know, what, what kind of skincare situation did she have going on? All the rest of that, <laughs>
4: Well, yeah, I mean, besides the fact that it would be lovely to know about, like, one specific person, it would also just be so insightful. It would just be so insightful yeah, into yeah. that time period and women and beauty and, like, literally everything from one what one person looked like in a way yeah. that I think there's not a lot. Like, you could find any other woman and you get it some kind of insight. But, yeah, somebody mm-hmm. who is so so explicitly described that way, knowing what she looked yeah. like would be so insightful. I
5: mean, and secretly, I would love it <sighs> if if she was imperfect too right because this idea that like her body is so powerfully beautiful right and they don't Mm -hmm. it's not there are no words like perfect and this idea of like a perfect beauty doesn't really seem to exist in the way it does now where there's the idea that you can just if you just put on the right filters on your instagram get the right face do the right you know plastic surgery it's it's sort of like no she's a compelling beauty it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that she doesn't have a bump in her nose, or you know, something that we might interpret as a flaw. Which I also, I think, is is also something that I find kind of enjoyable speculation to mm-hmm. about her.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, again, mythologically, because I was thinking myth, but like the same goes for Helen. Like, what? Yeah, what did yeah. they think of when they thought of beauty back then? And mm-hmm. just what did that mean? And oh my god, yeah. Like, so we know how they showed it, how they communicated it.
5: But, mm-hmm. but what did it actually mean is a whole different, different thing. Yeah. Like uh, yeah. Ruby always says with Helen, like part of the way, you know, she's the most beautiful is because she has the best accessories. Right? It's not yes, what she actually yes. looks like, but it's, it's her jewelry, right. That shows this or like same thing with Aphrodite, when she's getting dressed up to go seduce someone, she's putting on her oh, like, yeah. special accessories. So um, it, it's just pretty, doesn't have any because she's naked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> it's it's so funny you say that because ruby absolutely said that in our episode it's just all about accessories
5: i appreciate that
4: Uh, that's amazing (laughs) oh my gosh okay well i mean this has been so much fun. I just love so much when there's women we can talk about. So thank you so much. <laughs> oh, I'm so
5: happy. Well, let me tell you if I do the second research project that I'm thinking of doing on Lice, who is one of uh mm-hmm. colleagues and and also like possibly, you know, famously the most beautiful woman of the 4th century. I might have another yeah. woman to talk about. We'll just see if there's oh, enough please. there.
4: They they're just I'm just concerned there might not be enough. But oh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. I mean, story Once of I my podcast together. with Yeah. Oh, please yeah. tell me immediately wow. Um generative speculation right yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just the best. Um, Well, why don't you say a little bit more about the book itself? I'm not sure. I don't know the details at all. I just remember you saying you had one, so. (laughs) Yeah,
5: yeah. Well, it is coming out in February 2024. It's called Frinny, A Life in Fragments. So there you go. And it really is sort of focusing on what it means to tell the story of a woman's life when you do not have a fulsome biography of her. Um, So I talk, obviously I talk about the trial. I talk about her relationship with artists. I do a bit of that speculation based on, um, in particular, legal cases that focus on sex workers a little bit of speculation about what her early life could have been like and and sort of how she might have moved around Athens and then I have a really fun chapter on all of those 19th century sexy stage spectacles in Paris Um, and a couple of the movies like the the peplum movies from the 50s starring like Miss Grease is one of the actresses who plays her oh uh, and of course very famously Gina Lola Brigida plays a version of Frinny in a very famous um, film that launched her career. Uh, And it actually, it replicates the courtroom scene. So all of that is covered um, in, in the final chapter of this book. Uh, But I have to say it was a really fun project to work on because as we mentioned earlier, it was like fun fact did you know that Gina Lollobrigida played a version of Frinny and it launched her career, right? Like all these little neat details. And, and again, that are so perfect for thinking about the ways that we think of women in public, in the public eye. It's been so helpful and um, clarifying for me to kind of put all these things together, all these various narratives about one woman and, and to think about how they work compiled and passed on and again how the story of this woman's life in her own lifetime started to take on its own life um, has just been a really fascinating and really fun process
4: I bet I mean and there's there's lots of pretty
5: pictures too
4: oh good yeah (laughs) well just having any woman like just having this kind of content about any woman from the ancient world really is just so refreshing and lovely and, like, I can only yeah. imagine how much fun it would be because it it's just so insightful in a way that we're just lacking in so much otherwise oh, that you've just I gotta, know. like, take hold of what we've got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it sounds wonderful. Selfishly, I'm really excited that it comes out in time for me to use it as a source for Women's Month episodes next Ooh, year. Oh, so excellent. Excellent. Well, well, if you need anything, I can always send you, send you proofs. So... <laughs> I will be fine with that um <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much um oh we didn't even talk about people in the past um do oh. you like a quick plug <laughs> sure sure <laughs> all right yes okay so
5: I uh I am also the co-host of a podcast called People in the Past, and it's part of a larger public humanities project. We have blog posts and we have videos. So if you are interested in untangling the threads of the real lives of real people in the past, that's what we focus on. Um, So uh, we have a podcast. We actually have a whole season on women in the ancient world. So if you found the tidbits of what we talked about with Frinny here, compelling, we have even more detailed conversations about real women in the ancient world. Um, and you can find it at peopleingthepast.com. And sometimes Liv uh, collaborates with us too. So uh, yeah, so you can you can even find a, a yeah. little bit of crossover material and more to come on that topic anyways.
4: Oh, Yeah. And, yeah. and just generally, everyone with people in the past is lovely. And um, you guys got me into the first ever academic thing that I've done, uh, which was mm-hmm. really exciting. So it lives like a real life Coloquia.
5: academic as well. Yeah. I Going mean, to you know, my BA
4: has gotten me really far.
5: That's great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, public scholarship uh, is for everyone.
4: I mean, I've, yeah, I've learned that more and more as, I, as I've been doing this for so many years. It's the best.
2: <laughs> it is, uh, it really is
4: yeah um well i'll add in areas where we can uh where people can find you know more about people in the past and everything and follow things yeah. um but is there anything else that you want to share before we close off um hmm i think that's all i can think of right now <laughs> great i know it's yeah. always being put on the spot when i ask that well no i'm like
5: uh what else what else is going on? i'm gonna go home tonight i'll be like oh there's 68 other things i would like to have mentioned oh but i know right
4: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, we got an hour and a half in here, so we're great. Uh, But yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was so much fun.
5: Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, I think as we discovered in Vancouver this spring, we
4: can probably talk
5: on end forever about fascinating things. So
4: yeah, I I hope this is not the first time or the the last time you're on my show rather.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, wait till I read the next book. We'll just see what comes up.
4: (laughs) Perfect. Oh, nerds, thank you for listening as always. Sometimes I do love like a clickbaity episode title, you know? Like, did she flash her way to freedom? I mean, maybe, <laughs> but it's definitely not the most interesting thing about her, even if it could be true. But gods, does it make for a catchy title? I mean, hell yes! I didn't know any of the rest about Franny, and I'm just I'm so thrilled to have learned it all. Like, she was so so much more interesting than just like the woman who have said who is said to have flashed a courtroom. <laughs> So huge thank you to Melissa for coming on the show. I'm so excited to be sharing this one with you all. This came up because, like, at the colloquium that I mentioned, Melissa said in passing that if I ever wanted to do an episode about Freeney, you know, she was writing a book. And I was like, uh, uh, like, yes, yes. All I knew was the meme. But, like, I did know that there had to be so, so much more that I wanted to learn, not least because, like, there had to be enough for a book. It's my favorite thing when I get conversations pitched to me this way, like, Hey, if you ever want to know about X, you know, let me know. That's what people will just say, and then X is always like the most excitingly nerdy thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> Speaking of, you can read and hear more about fascinatingly nerdy things about the ancient people through People in the Past. They've got a podcast, but also a blog of incredible information and like guest writers and stuff. It's amazing. I have linked to their site in the episode's description. Thank you all for listening. You are so cool. This is so fun. My job is awesome. And thanks. And it's all thanks to you all. (laughs) Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, the assistant producer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com Slash Myths Baby, or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv, and I love this shit, like, particularly when smart people come on and tell me all about very real women doing very cool things. It's the best.